0: Hello, and welcome to a doozy of an episode. Uh, This is a recorded teaching I did at Gospel-Centered Recovery at Sailorville Church in Des Moines, Iowa, which is a ministry that exists for men and women who are struggling with addictions to help them to see victory and transformation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the passage I cover is really, really simple. It's just a few verses in James, but within it, um, I get into kind of the nature The abilities and the limitations of Satan. So this will probably not be the most casual of listens. Uh, I would encourage you to maybe take notes. Uh, I'll even include the link to Sailorville's YouTube recording of the teaching moment if you would like to see it a bit more in action and see the slides that I used. Right now, my plan after this episode is to record something of a follow up episode. Uh, Just because of the limitations of teaching, I couldn't dig into absolutely everything. So maybe dig a bit more into that. Maybe answer some common questions that I've received both after the teaching and just in general when I've tried to help people see Satan maybe in a way that they are not traditionally accustomed to. But. With that being said, I'm sure you are curious on what on earth you're in for, but uh, please just enjoy and remember that uh, I don't want you to believe what is said just because I say it, and I also don't want you to reject what is said just because it makes you uncomfortable or it's different from what you are accustomed to hearing. As always, weigh what is said against God's word, not just a single Bible verse, but the whole of what God's word has revealed. And, uh, you know, in this, um, you will have plenty of ammunition for that as I give various references and passages for you to chase down. But again, as I said, uh, if you just want to listen to this straight through, I will have a more thorough breakdown, hopefully next week. All right. Well, another night of GCR. Um, Excited as always to be here teaching. Uh, Very excited that I get to lead us in launching into uh, the book of James, Uh, probably one of my favorite books, uh, especially when I just, uh, when I'm doing my Bible reading, I just, you know, don't want to struggle too hard. I just want some nice, simple truths. James is a great book for that. Uh, So what I'm going to do tonight is I'm just going to give us a very, very short intro to what the book of James is to help you understand kind of what you're going to be in for over the next five weeks. Uh, And then we're really just going to be talking about three verses tonight. Uh, Three verses, one simple truth, but... uh, I think a few people here might be challenged by uh, what we're going to be seeing in God's Word. So as a quick intro to James, uh, you can see this in James 1.1, but this was written by James. Uh, Historians and theologians believe this was the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, So Mary and Joseph did actually have kids after Jesus, and it is uh, long believed that James is one of them. Uh, He is writing to the church in the dispersion, or the diaspora. Uh, If you read Acts chapter 8 and 11, you can see that as the... uh, As the gospel started spreading within Jewish communities, uh, religious and political persecution started driving them out from where they were, and so they ended up getting kind of scattered all throughout the region, Uh, and as you can imagine, uh, finding yourself in that situation where you had your comforts, uh, you had what you're familiar with, and then just being kind of forced out into a totally different situation, especially as Jews often getting sent into very pagan territories and things like that would be difficult. And so James is ultimately writing to these people who are almost left without anything familiar, anything comfortable, and they're just trying to figure out, how do I now live? And so this is written to this Jewish audience, but also really uh, we can imagine any uh, non-Jews who had been saved through the proclamation of Jesus Christ as these Jews were being planted around um, by persecution, but ultimately we know by the will of the Lord. Um, and then with that, uh, again, very practical letter, just about Christian living. You know, you can, uh, you know, we went through Hebrews, and Hebrews was chunky and tough. James is just nice. Um, you know, you can read a few verses at a time, get a good truth, um, and just really see uh, the, the will of the Lord through it. Uh, but what I want us to do tonight is we're going to be in James chapter 1, uh, verse starting at verse 13. Uh, so James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So tonight, as you saw in the title slide, and obviously what he's talking about here, we're going to be talking about temptation, and ultimately where temptation comes from. Uh, And this is an important thing, I mean, for all of Christian living, right? But especially in in a setting like GCR, where all of us are very familiar with the realities of temptation, especially the destructive effects of what happens when we give in to that temptation and surrender to it. And so what James says here, the very first thing is not if you are tempted. He says, let no one say when they are tempted. So we know temptation is going to come. And we need to have a realistic and biblical understanding of what temptation really is so that if we have any hope of saying no to it, we can. Uh, But what he says here is to not say that I'm being tempted by God. Uh, You know, it's easy to think that, you know, we have an all-powerful, Um, all-knowing, ever-present God of the universe, so that when this temptation comes, it was easy for this audience to say, God must surely be doing this to me. You know, God is the one who's trying to test my faith or try me or something like that. And James is saying, no, we don't want to blame the wrong person for temptation. We don't want to point the finger at saying, this is the source of my temptation when that's not actually the source. So the question that we want to ask is, who is the right person that we need to point our finger at? Who should we blame when that temptation comes? What James says is very simple. It could be understood in about two minutes probably, but if we don't accurately understand temptation, we are going to completely miss what he says because a lot of us, I think, are coming in here with some misunderstandings and presuppositions about how temptation works and where it comes from. So before we can go on to the next simple verse in James, we are going to have to take... Kind of a big detour, but I think a very important detour and one that, if what I say is true, is going to absolutely transform your walk with Jesus Christ and how you respond to your temptations. Um, Because we are ultimately going to say, is Satan the one who tempts us? Because that is probably the default answer, is no, of course God's not tempting me, but it's Satan. Satan whispers lies, Satan personally attacks me, You know, he's out to get each and every one of us. Um, Funny story, So I I finished prepping this lesson on Friday, and uh, I forgot that there was a movie coming out called Come Out in Jesus' Name. Some of you may have heard of it. It's a movie, um, it's a documentary about these guys who have a ministry where they go out and they cast demons out of people, uh, Christians and non-Christians alike. I had completely forgotten that I had tickets to this coming up until Sunday when my friend's like, hey, are you ready? Ready for what? No, I'm not. So, but as I was sitting there in the movie last night, about halfway through, I realized, Oh my goodness, everything I have prepared is a complete argument against what I'm seeing in this movie. So I don't want to sit there and say God did this, you know, because I I don't know with an actual fact how involved God was in that, but it's very hard to ignore the reality that God is in control. I, I, you know, want God to be the one who leads me in my study, and that is where my study brought me in a world where this idea of the the spiritual threat and danger and reality and power of Satan is so prevalent that audiences, you know, people in my own church, maybe people at Sailorville, people all around the country are hearing that Satan is out to get you and all these evil spirits are the ones that are are tempting you and making you want to sin and you need to be delivered from them. So um, we're just going to get into it and ask the question, number one, does Satan tempt us directly? Um, A lot of you have probably heard people say, or you've said it yourself, that, you know, Satan's just whispering these lies to me. Let us consider one thing before we make that claim. And that is that in all of recorded biblical history, Satan is only recorded as speaking to three people. First is Eve in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Garden of Eden, you know, did God really say uh, he also may have spoken to Adam? We're not sure based on the narrative, but it's possible that he also spoke to Adam. And then finally, he spoke to Jesus Christ. You can read that in Luke chapter two, the temptation in the wilderness. These are the only three people who could honestly say Satan was whispering to me. What we wanna ask is what did they have in common? If it's true that these are the only people Satan has ever whispered to in all of history, why? Adam, Eve, Jesus did not have a sin nature. They needed an outside force to tell them to choose something or to let them know that they could choose something other than God did you think about it? God planted the garden. He said, "Adam he said, he said, Adam, here's a tree. Don't eat from the tree. What did Adam know? Okay, don't eat from the tree. Easy enough. Satan comes along and says, hey, here's another option. You could eat from the tree. You could be like God. That had never entered their minds prior to that. Same with Christ. He had no sin nature in him, drawing him away from anything other than the perfect will of God. So does Satan whisper to us, we want to be careful when we use people like Adam, Eve, and Jesus and say, well, he whispered to them, maybe he whispers to me, unless you don't have a sin nature, in which case, I want to have a conversation with you. <laughs> uh, so, now next, what I want us to look at is what is it that we do know about Satan? Because we have a lot of assumptions about Satan, a lot of stuff that we've heard, that we've read, that we just assume in our own reading. What I want us to do is get a biblical understanding of who and what Satan is, what his capabilities are, and also what his limitations are. The first one is that we know that Satan is an angelic being. You can read that in Ezekiel twenty-eight fourteen, which says that he was an anointed cherub. Um, you see uh, in uh, Matthew a passage we'll talk about in a moment about how Satan is lumped in with angels. Uh, you know, it, It's very clear and obvious that Satan is not a timeless being like God. He is a creation. He is a created angelic being. And if that's true, then that means that Satan, because he's not unique, because he's not this evil version of God, he's going to have the exact same powers and limitations as any other angel that we see in the Bible. So let's look at just some examples that we see, not just of Satan, but also of creatures like Satan, of angelic beings, and see what they can and can't do, so that when we are trying to understand what Satan does in our life, what his powers are, we rightly understand what is true about him. So the first one is that we know that Satan can occupy one space at a time. Anytime you see an encounter with Satan, anytime you see an encounter with angels anywhere in the Bible, if that angel is standing in front of the person talking to them, that angel is not also next to them. That angel is not the next house. They're not in a completely different country. They are not simultaneously in heaven and on earth. Angels are like us. They occupy volume. They are you know, so wide. They are so tall. They can only be at one place at a time. Likewise, Satan, the one that we think whispers to us and personally gets, goes out to get us, can only be in one place at a time. Another thing we know is that Satan has to travel to get where he wants to go, just like any other angel. So in Daniel chapter 10, uh, you see in the early part of it that Daniel has prayed to God. And um, an angel eventually shows up and says, Daniel, I would have been here sooner, because this angel is at least three weeks late. And so the angel says to him, Daniel, I would have been here sooner. But as he says in Daniel 10, 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was standing against me for 21 days. And then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. So there is another spiritual angelic being, which he calls the prince of the kingdom of Persia, who stopped this angel from getting to where he wanted to go. So God, this angel was standing before God. God said, hey, here's my message. Go deliver it to Daniel. Angel said, okay. So the angel traveled from point A to point B. Somewhere along the way, he got waylaid by an evil angel who held him there for 21 days. So, angels can't teleport. They can't move you know, so fast that they can be in all, almost all places at once. They have to travel to get wherever they want to go because, again, they are spatial beings. They have to transport all of what they are from one place to another. So, immediately we want to ask ourselves if we think that Satan is sitting here whispering lies to us and attacking us, if he's doing that, he can't do that to someone else. He can't do it to, to someone in another country, he can't do it to your pastor. And immediately we want to ask ourselves, you know, am I really so special that Satan is going to be in this one place, having to travel to get to me, bothering me for five minutes or three days or a year or whatever, and then having to go and travel to get somewhere else? Maybe not. Next, we know that Satan and all angels have limited knowledge and they can't read minds. We know that angels do not have access to all knowledge like God has. Angels are kind of like us, and that they have a certain amount of knowledge, and as they observe, as they see things happen, as time goes on, they learn new things. They don't have access to unlimited knowledge. Likewise, there's no reason to think they can read minds, because there's nothing in all of the Bible that implies that an angel can read a mind. Angels have to communicate with humans verbally. It's always a verbal communication. The only person that we know that can read minds is God, and we want to be So careful not to make Satan out to be this evil version of God. Maybe not quite as powerful, but really close and having almost all the same abilities as God. If Satan's an angel and we don't see angels reading minds, we want to be very careful to assume that Satan can read our thoughts. Likewise, we know that Satan has to speak audibly. Again, any encounter with an angel, anytime Satan is dealing with humanity, it's always a verbal conversation that he is having. So if you think that Satan is whispering to you, it's not a feeling you have. It's not a, a draw you have towards sin. Satan needs to literally be speaking in such a way that you may not be able to hear him in a loud room, because that is how angels communicate. We also know that Satan is no more powerful than any other angel out there. And this, I think, is huge, you know, because we can say, oh, but Satan is so evil. He somehow amassed all this power. Let's look at what happens to Satan in Revelation 21 through 3. So, this is John looking forward to a future event. And it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So, look who God sends to bind Satan. It's not the archangel Michael, it's not Jesus. The father himself doesn't stop and say, Satan is too powerful. I have to get involved and bind him myself. It's just a random angel, right? Just Jim Bob the angel off on the side, holding the keys. God says, go, bind him. And the angel does. Because Satan is no more powerful than any other angel. And Satan is on a leash. And that leash only extends as far as God allows it. The moment that God says that he's bound, he's bound. Uh, And then moving on, it says, and then the angel threw Satan into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Now put a mental pin in that. Not that he would not deceive people any longer, that Satan could not deceive entire nations any longer. Until the thousand years were finished, after which these things, after these things, he must be released for a short time. And if you continue reading Revelation 20, you see that Satan is released. And what does he do? He goes out and he deceives nations. Again, that is going to be key in a moment. Uh, And then the last thing that we can know about Satan is that he accuses us day and night before God. This is in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, where it basically says that Satan accuses us before God day and night. Now, I want to be careful here with poetic language. I don't think it's saying Satan is literally standing there moment to moment, constantly hurling accusations against God's people. I'm going to work under the assumption and be conservative and say that Satan is what this is probably saying is Satan is before God frequently spends most of his time in the courtroom of God acting kind of like a slimy lawyer and finding every little thing about God's people that he can point to and accuse and say oh look at them you know they've been they say they've been saved by the power of Jesus Christ but look how they're living according to my will look how they're falling for all the things that I lay in front of them look how they say they love you and then go out and live like they used to that's what Satan spends a lot of his time doing So let's just get a picture and an understanding of Satan versus how we assume he is. We assume that Satan can do almost anything, that he knows almost everything about us, that he hears our thoughts, that he's personally attacking each and every one of us, that he's whispering to each of us. But the picture that we've painted of Satan through what God's word has revealed about angels and Satan himself is that they can only be in one place at one time. They have to verbally communicate for us to hear them. They can't speak into our minds, they cannot read our minds and they're on a leash. They can only do so much. So immediately, this all-powerful, great enemy of Satan picture that we often have, where he's the one who's making us just do all these things and have all these temptations and have all these horrible thoughts, it's not holding up very well. So that is not, of course, to say that Satan is not a threat. Satan is absolutely a threat. Satan is more of a threat than any of you probably realize. But Satan's methods are not these little personal attacks that we ascribe to him where when things are really hard, that's when Satan's there. Satan works. Satan gets his attacks in most often when we're not even paying attention, when we don't even realize that he's the one doing it. So Satan has basically a twofold method for how he actually brings deception to our lives. First is that he controls the world system through rebellious angels. Time does not allow me to dig into this, but um, you know, note down the passages, read them yourself. Uh, but in Deuteronomy 32, eight through nine, we see basically heaven's perspective of the Tower of Babel. So you know, the Tower of Babel, mankind had come together. They had tried building a city, reaching up to God. God came down, he confused their languages and they broke up into their own separate nations. In Deuteronomy 32, we see the heavenly perspective of this where it says that God divided the nations to what are called the sons of God. These are angelic beings. Each nation in the world was assigned basically a resident angel who was tasked with overseeing and guiding these nations that it says that God disinherited. And their job was to basically point them back to God, to drive worship and understanding of God to these people so that they could live out the lives that they wanted to. God had disinherited them because of their rebellion. That didn't mean God was done with them. He had tasked these angels to, to oversee humanity. But in Psalm 82, what we see is God is basically bringing down the hammer on these angels, saying, you have completely failed in your duties to guide humanity like I told you. Look at them. They are broken. They don't know righteousness. They don't know justice. They have no knowledge of God because these angels had failed in their duties. Now, where we see these connections is in Matthew 25, 41, where it says that the lake of fire was created for Satan and his angels. So here we see that these angels, whether some of them, whether all of them, they have aligned themselves with Satan, and they are basically working together in tandem to bring deception and misery to the world. So understanding that, because I know not a lot of you are convinced, but let's say for a minute that this is true, that, that what we're fighting against, that what we're dealing with is not one-on-one attacks, but entire nations controlled by rebellious angels. Think about what Ephesians 6.12 says. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the rulers of what? Against the authorities, the authorities over what? Against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's what this is talking about. We are at war, but we are not at war against a single guy named Satan who's constantly plotting it out to get us. We are at war on a worldwide scale. All the world is designed to drive us towards the plans of Satan. And that is what we're fighting against. We are fighting against an entire country ruled by spiritual forces that are I mean, you look at, look at America right now. Where do you think this is coming from? Humans are messed up, but where are they getting these ideas? Why do we keep driving ourselves towards darkness? Because there is more going on than just people making really bad choices. There is an entire spiritual kingdom over America and over the world Driving us in that direction. Whoops. All right. Uh, and then Revelation twenty-three. I said to put a mental pen in that. Satan gets bound, and what does he stop from doing? Deceiving whole nations. This is all territorial territorial language. This is all kingdom language that we're dealing with here. This is what Satan's dealing with. He's not making one-on-one attacks. He's way too smart for that, and he does not have time to mess with you when he has much bigger plans and much really sneakier plans to get you to act on what you're already going to do. And what we know that he does then is not make individual attacks, but he bombards the world with deception. Again, Ephesians 6, verse 16. In addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, So a lot of us are familiar, if you read Ephesians 6, the armor of the Lord, right? You got the helmet, you got the shield, the sword, the feet. And a lot of us know, you know, when when, uh, pastors teach it or books talk about it, or even we understand it, a lot of us are like, hey, we need to understand this in light of Roman warfare. You know, the shield, the helmet. We need to understand that Paul is writing to people, getting them to picture a Roman soldier. And that's absolutely true. Paul has in mind here Roman warfare when he's talking about the armor of God. But then when we talk about the arrows of Satan, we completely abandon the Roman warfare metaphor. And instead we picture something like this. Legolas from The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. A master archer who stands toe-to-toe with people, you know, just, just 10 feet away from people, and he takes out an arrow, and if he fires that arrow, it's a direct kill shot against a single target. And he just keeps doing that. He just keeps attacking people from point-blank range. That is how we picture the arrows of Satan, is it's this, this you know, one-on-one duel that we're having where we've got our Roman armor, and Satan is running at us with a bow and arrow trying to attack us. But again, we need to understand what's being said here in that same metaphor of Roman warfare. And in Roman warfare, you didn't have a single archer charging the front lines. You had hundreds, you had thousands of archers and they were nowhere near the front line. They stood in the back behind the front line and they just fired arrows indiscriminately into the fray. They didn't have individual targets. They just knew that if they are shooting 10 arrows and a hundred other guys are shooting 10 arrows, those are gonna hit something Right? And so, how Roman archers worked is to just bombard their targets with arrows. It didn't matter if one archer hit someone. Enough arrows, enough distraction, enough chaos. A lot of those were going to hit. A lot of people were going to die. You didn't know if you succeeded in that hit, but that wasn't the point. And so, when Paul is talking about how you know, we need to, to extinguish the flaming arrows of Satan, That's not Satan shooting one arrow at you, watch out. It's that the world is covered in thousands of arrows raining at you every single moment. And if you are not watchful, you're gonna take 50 arrows to the chest while blocking that one that you think you're actually aware of. So what I want us to understand before we get to the very, because I told you, James is a simple book, right? This is hard stuff. This is stuff people have probably not thought about or heard of but what we need to understand is the same thing that James's audience understood before we can hear this simple truth, and that is that there's no biblical or logical foundations for Satan tempting individuals on a daily basis. We don't see it in the Bible, and by logical, I mean that when we understand the nature of Satan as a rebellious angel, the limitations that he has don't line up with the powers that we give to Satan. We also know that Satan deceives on a global scale. There is so much more going on than just that one temptation you are fighting with at that very moment. And then finally, we give him too much credit, but also not enough credit. We give so much power to Satan, turning him into an evil version of God that we completely miss what he's actually doing. And what he's actually doing is so much more nefarious, so much more destructive, that I guarantee everyone in here, myself included, are currently allowing Satan to attack us moment by moment without even realizing it. So let's just assume that what I'm saying is at least somewhat accurate, that temptation does not come from God, like James rightly said, but let's say that temptation also doesn't come from Satan. Where does temptation come from? Why are you tempted? Why do you struggle with the desire to give in to your addiction, to give in to your your quote-unquote bad habits and things like that? Where is that coming from? James says it in the next verse. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Or the English Standard Version says that they are lured and enticed by their own desire. We don't need Satan's help to sin. We are more than capable with our own sin natures of doing it ourselves. We're not Adam and Eve, we're not Jesus. We don't need someone to drive us towards sin. Satan doesn't need to mess with that. All Satan has to do is just provide opportunities. He lays out the buffet knowing full well that if we desire to sin, all we need is an opportunity to act on that sin. That is how Satan operates. He has created an entire world of distractions, of, of desirable things, of ways to find your identity, of telling you what you deserve, of telling you what you need to live to be happy, of telling you you need to be happy in general and that's what your life is all about. This is the deception of Satan. Satan. But we are not tempted by Satan. Satan does not whisper to us. Satan does not attack us. Satan provides opportunities for us to do what we already want to do. It is our desires. It's what we truly believe. It's what we truly want in the depths of who we truly are. Maybe we know that it's bad for us. Maybe we know it's wrong. But there is something in us, something that we've been exposing ourselves to. We have spent so much time in the world believing all the lies of the world, believing all the idolatry that the world shoves at us. That in that moment, we say, I know this is wrong, I know this is bad, I know God doesn't want me to do it, but I have this other option. And I have the opportunity to take hold of that other option and act on it and trust that somehow it's going to bring me satisfaction in this moment. I may regret it later, but boy, right now, I believe that it's going to make me happy. So, what is this world that we live in? If you're here and you struggle with drugs, alcohol, food, other substances... Think of the world you live in and maybe even the world you expose yourself to. Think of how glamorized the party lifestyle is and how if you want to fit in, if you want to be cool, if you want to be happy, if you want to live in the moment, you need to give in to these things that are going to make you feel better. Maybe you buy into the world's idea that you need comfort in your life, that you don't deserve to suffer, that you don't deserve to be unhappy, and that drugs, alcohol, whatever, that's going to make you feel good because that is what you need. Uh, Maybe you feel that you just need to escape. You know, you got out of a bad relationship or you were in a lot of pain or you have a lot of past trauma that you you are struggling with. And so the alcohol numbs that, the drugs numb that, because that is what you need. The greatest thing you need, that you believe you need in your life, what your greatest desire is, is to not feel negatively. Uh, You know, if you struggle with porn, you know, think of the non-pornographic media that we have access to. Men and women in, in shows, movies, music videos, social media, um, you know, advertisements, you know, how people are encouraged to act and dress for both genders, we are bombarded with this idea that you need to look good and that you need to look at people who look good. That you deserve sex. That we all need relationships, we all need happiness, and if you're someone who does not have a spouse, well, you're entitled to something. You're entitled to taste from all that the world is throwing at you. Maybe it's in a, a, you know, a sexual relationship to someone you're not married to. Maybe it's going and looking at something just to get something of that. Maybe you are married and you say, you know, I deserve to be happy in my marriage. I deserve for my spouse to be attractive to me, to do the things that I want. But, you know, we haven't had sex in a while or I'm not attracted to them anymore. So, you know, I'm going to go and find what I deserve elsewhere. I'm going to find it in another woman. I'm going to find it in another guy. I'm going to find it in looking at certain things or whatever. Uh, if you struggle with emotional issues, like anger, where does that come from? Because a lot of times it's like, oh, I'm so angry, I just can't help myself. Well, you live in a world that tells you to be selfish and entitled, that you deserve for everything to go your way, that the greatest need you have in your life is to be happy. And so what happens when that jerk cuts you off in traffic, or you're having money problems, or your kids didn't do what you said, or your wife didn't behave the way that you, she, you wanted her to, or your husband just came home and sat down and, and did nothing? Well, ultimately, you're saying, I am entitled to that person to do what I say. I am entitled to life to go how I want it to. And if it doesn't, I'm going to get angry. I'm going to unleash my wrath on the world because how dare it not give me what I am entitled to? So if you struggle with anger here tonight or any other emotional issues, really ask yourself, not is anger your issue, but what are you getting angry about? What are you believing that you need? Where are, as James says, where are your desires at? it's leading you to say, this makes me angry. And then James goes on, says that when lust or desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when fully matured, brings forth death. Now, a very critical thing we need to understand is that notice when sin comes in, sin doesn't come in at the temptation. Sin comes in at the action. Now, temptation comes from sinful motivations and sinful desires, as we'll see in a moment. But please realize that when you, when you feel that urge for alcohol, you feel that urge to go to a website, you feel that urge to hit that guy, that in and of itself is not the sin. The sin is when you give birth to it. When you, when you let that temptation dwell, when you let that temptation control you, when you give in and say, yes, this is what I need to be happy and I'm going to go get that happiness. That is when sin comes. And then as sin matures, as we let that sin keep growing in our life, as we keep giving into that addiction, as we keep being controlled by that emotional issue, as we keep ultimately not living for the Lord, then it's going to bring us to a point of death. This could be physical death, but this could also just be destruction. I mean, really, how many in here can say that because of your addictions, because of your sins, you've seen it wreak destruction all across your life? You know that what he's saying is true, right? Me too. You all know that this is true you know that you immerse yourself in worldliness. You, you spend your time you know, driving to work, listening to the news or listening to secular music. You spend your time you know, seeking entertainment and distractions. Your time in God's word, your time in prayer, your time at serving God, not just sitting at home reading the Bible, but actually going out and doing God's will in your life. Most of you know that's very minimal in your life. And so it should come as no surprise that when you are immersing yourself in worldliness in a, in a sinful, Satan-fueled worldview, there should be zero surprise that you are then tempted to give in to these things. You've already spent six days out of your week after church not looking at God's word, not thinking about godly things. Are you really surprised that you've spent hours upon hours, weeks, months, years of your life primarily being a citizen of the kingdom of Satan and then being like, boy, where did this temptation come from? It's because we are allowing the world to tell us what we should desire. And then as we let the world continue to tell us what we desire, we have no reason to choose the things of God because we are lured, we are enticed. We see that this thing over here is desirable. We can get it our way. We don't need to wait for God who may not give us the spouse we want, may not give us the comfort and the rest and the freedom from from depression and anxiety that we want. So we will fix the problem ourselves because the world gives us a way to do it. The world gives us permission to do it. And the world tells us you deserve to be happy and we buy it. So before I wrap this up, I want to just look at a graphic. Uh, This is uh, something I adapted for my friend, Chris Lenore. Um, I I streamed it down and simplified it a bit. Uh, But this gives us kind of the progression of sin in your life. So just to help kind of bring down everything I'm talking about. So what I want you to do is to think about a sin that you struggle with, right? A temptation that you frequently have. It can be something recent. It can be something you know historically you struggled with. And put your, put that sin in this as we're talking about it. So sin starts with a desire, as James tells us, right? We desire something in this world. And, and it's not that desire is wrong, right? Because we can desire the things of God. But this desire that we're talking about is I desire desire it at all costs, right? I feel that I deserve something. I don't want this thing to the glory of God. I want this thing to the glory of myself. So let's take, uh, we'll, we'll, take we'll take sex, because that's the first one he's got on there. So you, someone desires sex. They could have no idea how to, to fulfill that desire. They can know they want it, but they may not have good opportunity to, to see it out, right? But if you live in the world that we live in and you desire sex, how hard is it to satisfy that desire? Or if you want money, how hard is it to download music, to steal time from your boss, to, to find any way to satisfy the things that you need, to overspend on Amazon, right? It doesn't have to be stealing, but it can be, I desire money, I desire the freedom that comes to get the things I want, and so I'm going to spend irresponsibly. I'm going to be you know, a, a shopaholic. I'm going to be addicted to spending money incorrectly. Take anything you're struggling with. The ultimate reality is that you want that thing and you want it now. And so, what does Satan do? Where does Satan come into this? Not in generating our desire but in offering us a variety, a whole buffet, a whole world of ways to satisfy our desires. To say, you know, hey, you, you, you know, God says to live this way. God says to desire it this way, but look at all these other options you have. And look at everyone around you who is so happy. Look at everyone in your movies, and your TVs, in your books, in your, in your social media feeds, in your friends. Look at them chasing this stuff. Look at them. They're not living for the Lord. They're not denying themselves. You can have this now. And if not this, how about that? Because we have billions of things in this world that we can chase after that's going to distract us from God, that's going to let us feed our sinful desires. And so we are lured, as James says, right? We, we see that thing, we say, hey, I want something that offers it to me, so I'm going to go and I'm going to pursue it. I'm going to dwell on it. I'm going to think about it. At the same time, as the world presents all these things to us, and as we are exposing ourselves to worldly thinking, as we are allowing our minds to be conformed by the world, what is the world telling us? That porn is good, that there are no genders, that you, know, you, you deserve happiness, that you, you need to be happy in your marriage, and if your spouse isn't doing it for you, then leave them. Because what you deserve most is happiness. You deserve satisfaction, you deserve safety, you deserve whatever it is. And so Satan offers us this world of things that tells us, hey, if you want to be satisfied, if you want to rest, if you want to finally feel good, check this out. And so what does that tell us? You know, I'm unhappy, I'm uncomfortable, I'm miserable, I'm lacking something in my life. Maybe this will fill that void. You know, how many of you, how many of your addiction stories begin with, you know, I was struggling, I was in a dark place, I didn't know what I wanted, so I just tried alcohol. I just tried drugs once. What was that? (laughs) That was a world of options telling you, hey, this can help you. This can make you feel better. But again, remember I said that the temptation itself is not the sin. It's when we act on that desire. When we say, that alcohol could make me feel good, but I'm going to choose the way of God. You have not sinned. But if you say, that alcohol is going to make me feel good, but I'm not going to yet. But maybe. Maybe I'll keep it in the back pocket for when days get really bad. And then Someday at work, someday at home, whatever. Things just go you know, completely off the rails. Everything's miserable. Well, remember what you kept in your back pocket. Remember what you allowed yourself to dwell on. Even if you didn't dwell on it day by day, when you allow that thing to be an option, when you allow it to keep tempting you day by day, then eventually you're gonna be like, yeah, maybe, maybe this is the time. Maybe it will bring me because this Bible stuff's not working. Church stuff's not working. God's not answering my prayers. I'm not getting what I want now. So I'll, I'll try it my way. And it's when we act on that desire that God says that it's sin. So we are lured when we have wants, but not wanting them God's way. And we are enticed when we believe that all these things in the world will satisfy us. So to wrap this up, takeaway number one, remember the true source of your temptation. You are responsible for your temptation. There's there's no nice way to say it. Think of the worst thing you've ever done. Think of the worst thing you've ever thought. Think of the worst thing you've ever wanted. You know, whether it's, you know, maybe you've destroyed your whole family or you've destroyed your career or destroyed, you feel like you've destroyed your life. Think about, uh, you know, if, you've, if you just had this horrible thought that you don't know where it came from. You know, maybe you've, maybe you've wanted to just walk away from your family, you know, just abandon your wife, abandon your kids and just go chase your own happiness. Maybe you've wanted to kill somebody. Think of the worst, I mean, don't dwell on the worst thing you've done, please. But, but you know the, the worst things that you've done or thought. And ask yourself if that comes from you, what does that say about you? How depraved are you truly? If all those horrible things you've done, all the destruction in your life, if that is because you simply chased after your desires, you can't blame Satan, you can't blame biology you can't blame your upbringing, if you can only blame the choices that you have made, the, the worldliness that you've immersed yourself in, the lies of the world controlled by Satan that you've believed, that you've allowed to say, yeah, maybe, yeah, you know, I'm not going to believe those really crazy things, but, you know, I can, I can find my identity in politics. I can find my identity in being successful. You know, I, can, I don't want to make too much money because I don't, you know, don't want to look bad, but, you know, maybe money will bring me some happiness. We buy into this stuff, and the more you surround yourself in worldliness, the more you are not in God's word, the more you are not praying, the more you are you know, treating church as this kind of flippant thing that's you know, an optional social club or something you do to check a, a, a list off the box, a box off the list. <laughs> the more we are not living our lives for God, at the end of the day, the more we're living our lives for Satan. Not that he's making us do anything. Satan knows precisely what we want. Not us individually, but humans in general. He's a smart guy. He, doesn't, he knows he doesn't need to attack you. He knows how much you hate God on your own. He knows how much you will chase every little idol, every little satisfaction. You will dive headfirst into sin. That's not hard for Satan to make happen. All he has to do is say, hey, God said don't eat from this tree, but have you considered this other option? And that is all he needs for you to chase after that sin, for you to look, for you to be lured and enticed and take that drink, take that hit, visit that website, say that word, hit that person, whatever you're struggling with. All Satan has to do is just give you a world and let you go prancing through it, not living your life for the Lord, but living your life for yourself and then having Jesus as an emergency pull handle when things get too bad. That's not the life that God calls us to, but that is the life that a lot of people in here tonight are living. That it is your life, it is primarily your life, six days out of the week, maybe six days and 24 hours, or 23 hours out of the week. But that, you know, that one hour you give to God and you say, that should be enough. It's not. You need to choke out the hold that Satan has in your life. The only way you do that is not to be stronger, not to be better, not to be smarter, not to have good self-control, but to just live for the Lord. Do not fulfill the desires of the flesh and you will fulfill the desires of the spirit. Number two, do not let your desires be conformed to a world that Satan controls. There's this little verse called Romans 12 too. Maybe some of you have heard of it, right? <laughs> do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If there's any English nerds out there, you may notice that be conformed isn't something we choose to do. It's something we allow to happen. We are passive. We can sit there and say, world here's how I'm going to spend my time, here's where I'm going to put my desires, here's what I'm going to think about for my identity, for my satisfaction, for what my future needs to be, for what my life is about, and the world's going to happily conform us. Or, we choose God. We reject the things of the world, we reject the distractions, and we say, no, I'm not just going to, be, I'm not just going to resist those things, but I'm going to be present with God. I'm going to model my life. I'm going to, I'm going to immerse my life in the things of the Lord then you're going to be transformed. It's not something you fight for. It's something that you allow to happen to yourself. Number three, during temptation, turn away from sin's promises and towards your Savior. Again, that that temptation is not where you've committed your sin. That temptation is not where you have failed God. When temptation comes, whatever it is, however big, however small, you still have Jesus there willing to deliver you. There is no temptation that's overtaken you. But when the temptation comes, God will deliver and escape. Sometimes that escape is as simple as walking away, stepping away. Sometimes that is escape is throwing your phone in the blender. It's canceling all your streaming. It's closing all your social media accounts. It's cutting off ties with your friend group. You have an escape from temptation, but you have to be able to identify where that temptation is coming from. What are you allowing into your life that is optional? That you are saying, Satan, bring it on. I'm strong enough to stand against the temptations. I'm strong enough to say no. I'm strong enough to resist you're not. And there is so much that you are allowing yourself to be bombarded with that you do not even realize. And then finally, understand your wickedness apart from Jesus to see how much you need him. Like I said, if you take this, if you chew on it over the next few weeks, if you really say, where's this temptation coming from? Why am I having this thought? And you accept that you really are as sinful as your thought life is, as your actions are, how desperately do you truly need Jesus in your life? Because suddenly Jesus isn't a means to make you just a little bit of a better person. You'll realize Jesus is your only source of goodness because goodness only comes when we are seeking to do things because we love the Lord. God isn't interested in us just doing good things and us just kicking our habits and us just saying no to sin. He's interested in us also saying yes to him, to choosing him. And the more we see our wickedness, the more we see how vile, how sinful, how wretched we are without Jesus Christ, the more we realize just how much we need him, how every little good thing that we do, how everything that we are not tempted by is purely because of the goodness of Jesus Christ in our life. Now, if you're here tonight and you know that, that you don't know what this Jesus thing is about, or maybe you're not sure if you're a Christian, you know, you maybe prayed a prayer, but you're just not sure. I'm going to be honest with you. None of this matters to you. You are not in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You are in the kingdom of Satan. You are a slave to sin, as Romans 6 tells us. It does not matter. I mean, I, I don't want you to take that drink, right? I don't want you to get in those fights. I don't want you to struggle with depression and want to kill yourself. But the reality is that those things, you know, killing those habits, you know, cleaning yourself up, that only matters for the few decades that you get in this world. It doesn't matter one iota in eternity. There is no amount of good, no amount of self-improvement, of behavior modification that you can bring on yourself to impress God. You are as wretched and vile as you know you are. And even more so because there's stuff that you may think is good about yourself, not even realizing that it comes from a place of sin and pride and arrogance. None of you are good. And if you do not have Jesus Christ, then the first thing you need to do is realize that One, your sin has separated you from God. You are under God's judgment. God will judge every sin, every law-breaking that you have ever committed. Because there's no good that you can do, Jesus Christ had to come, right? Jesus Christ is God. He came in the flesh. He lived a perfect life like we never could, like Adam never did. He died on the cross, and on the cross, God punished our sins on him. So a way to think about it is that we had a criminal record that had our whole list of, of crimes on it. But Jesus says that those who will ask him to save him, who will trust that he alone can save, he will erase your name and he will put his name on it. He will take that penalty for you so that you can be forgiven and you can have eternal life with God so that the stuff I've talked about tonight can matter to you. But if you are here tonight and you have trusted in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, if you know that he is your savior, you know that he has set you free from the bondage of sin, then you've got to live for him. Jesus didn't just save you to get you out of hell in the future. Jesus died so that you can live today and you are not living if you spend hours a day scrolling on your phone of hanging out with people that you know are not good for you, of setting your thoughts on things that are not God. Jesus Christ did not save you for you to just live your life back in the mud where he found you. If you're struggling with temptation, if you're struggling with addiction, realize the source of it is your heart, your desires, the things that you are allowing yourself to believe. Repent from them, turn from them, and find your your full satisfaction and your full identity in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash faith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.